Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking with Dr. Richard Vetter. He's the director of the Center for College Affordability and Productivity, centered in Washington, D.C., and he's a distinguished professor emeritus of economics at Ohio University. He also is an adjunct scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Dr. Vetter says colleges and universities must undergo major changes and reforms to remain relevant. He talks about the fact that the costs of higher education are skyrocketing at the same time the value of a college degree is diminishing in the marketplace. We're at a time now where a lot of states are submitting their budgets and budgets on higher education. So maybe this is a good time to to step back, and I know that you've studied this for uh, at least uh, the last 10, 15 years, uh, the costs of education and the value of, of education. So let's break this down a, a little bit. Let's, let's look at the cost. That seems to be the, the easiest one to, to substantiate by data. Yeah, it is. Uh, Any way you look at it, the cost of college has gone up very substantially. Now, you have to abstract from that that prices in general have gone up. The price of, you know, of bread has gone up over the last 20 years a little bit, and the price of hotel rooms and uh, everything. So, but abstracting from that, uh, prices have been going up, have about doubled in the last 20, 22, 23 years since, say, the mid-90s. And if you go back even a little further back, and this is even after you, us ancient people, we, we won't <laughs> go back to when we were in school, which no. is truly uh, uh, ancient year, years back in the biblical times. <laughs> uh, uh, but if we go back to 1978, say, um, from 1978 to the present, the price of college has gone about 3.5% a year more than, and that's abstracting from other price increases. And the, there's nothing I can think of other than medical care, perhaps, health care costs, that have had a similar kind of increase. Oh, there's a few isolated. Cigarette prices have gone up 
people like that. But that's sort of artificial because of public policies designed to discourage cigarette smoking. So we raise taxes on cigarettes quite enormously. So, but uh, higher ed is unique somewhat. Now, for a long time, this was no big deal. I mean, if you look at it, the price of theater tickets have gone up sure. forever, forever. I right. mean, uh, you know, go back to Shakespeare. He died in six. He died up four hundred years ago, last year, sixteen sixteen. Ever since Shakespeare died, the price of going to see King Lear has <laughs> gone up because the price of every because uh, there's no productivity advance in producing. Uh, uh, King Lear. It takes the same number of actors today as it did 400 years ago. You know, big deal. But at the same time, people's incomes have gone up, and so it isn't really much more of a burden to go to see a Shakespearean play today than it was when Shakespeare lived. So it costs, in real terms, maybe 20 times as much, but we're making 20 times as much money. In higher ed, that, that was... That trend was generally true in the 19th century and through about three-quarters of the 20th century. Uh, even when you and I were in school, uh, things were getting more expensive, but uh, you know our family incomes were going up. Now our family incomes, first of all, they're not rising as much as they used to. And secondly, uh, they're rising far less than the cost of college. So the, co- the burden of going to college has grown remarkably in the last 30 or 40 years in spite of all kinds of programs that we have designed to prevent, uh, you know, to make college more affordable, uh, especially federal financial aid programs. If, if Using your medical analogy, though, uh, you said medical costs have gone up exorbitantly, and they, they truly have, but one could argue that we now get better medical care. There have been advances in medical care. So we're getting more for the dollar that we're paying. That same argument can't necessarily be made with higher education. I think you... That's why you're the brilliant man that you are, Tom. (laughs) Uh, uh, That point is exactly correct. And the trouble with higher ed in that, with that respect, uh, well, for, let's start with medicine. You can measure some of the improvements. People are living to be 80 years old now on average, and 40 or 50 years ago they were living maybe to be 65 or 70. So you can actually measure the increases. We don't have as many deaths from heart attacks as we did a generation or two ago, and even in cancer, we've made advances. We can, we can, we can say with fairly pristine accuracy how much improvement there has been. And um, in higher ed, though, the measurements are very elusive. The greatest irony about what colleges and universities do, they're in the knowledge business. They're in the business of measuring things and reporting things. But the one thing they're not terribly good at is measuring what they do themselves. And uh, in part of it's an inherent difficulty. How do you measure you know, what, is, uh, what is important? There would be disagreements about what we should even be teaching. So, but do seniors know more than freshmen? We, well, we think they do. Uh, they get jobs and so forth and, and whatnot. We think they've 
accumulated wisdom and knowledge while in college, but we can't say with preciseness what that is. And we certainly can't say in preciseness what it is today as opposed to what it was 25 or 50 years ago. I actually believe the quality of learning or has not changed all that much uh, over time. I think we have some advances. We have some technological advances that have helped. I mean, it's nice that we have PowerPoint now, and (laughs) we have email now, and we have computers now, and we can do distance learning now, and I think there's some good things that are happening online. So I think there's a lot of positive things we can say, but I can't really say that the students going to school today are learning more than those who went 50 years ago. And of course, what does learning mean? And is college just about learning or is it about other things? Is it about knowing the difference between right and wrong? Is it about uh, civic virtue? Is it about leadership and how do you measure leadership? Is part of college, we're, t- we're, we're uh, training the next generation of leaders uh, for tomorrow. And how do you measure that, you know, uh, relative to how, you know, Thomas Jefferson graduated from William and Mary, I think, at, I think at the ridiculous age of 18 or something, 19. <laughs> He's a pretty bright guy. Yeah. He was in their honors tutorial program. <laughs> uh, uh, and, you know, he did pretty well. And uh, the college graduates of the 18th and 19th century probably as well stayed. So and the thing, hard things are very difficult to measure. So uh, that doesn't mean uh, – and, and while I'm on that, sure. let, me, let me go a little further. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to make things worse for higher ed. Okay. In the mid-60s, the, uh, there's surveys that show that the average college student – studied or was in class or was uh, writing papers or studying uh, reading material, uh, preparing for academic uh, exercises that they had to perform, about 40 hours a week, the typical college student nationwide. The, The surveys, and there have been several done by different groups, but they all show that today that figure has fallen about 27 hours a week. And I mean, you're supposed to be in class 16 or right. so, uh, most of that. Uh, so kids are uh, working less, apparently, at their studies. Now, they, they could be more efficient than they were 40 years ago. Maybe with the internet and things, you can do things a little quicker than you could 40 years ago, like preparing for a paper. You can uh, uh, get a source and three minutes instead of an hour walking over the library. (laughs) There are some, you know, technological advantages that might have helped a little bit. But by and large, the uh, we aren't taking college quite as seriously in terms of our time uh, as the students aren't and arguably the faculty aren't either as they were a generation or two ago. So I don't know that we're learning any more than we did. I I think the quality, it would be very difficult to prove that the quality has improved dramatically. Well, on that point, if you look at at colleges and universities now and the 
Yes, there have been technological advancements, but we're still basically on the same model that we were decades and decades and decades ago. Or even uh, millenniums ago under Socrates. It really hasn't changed You go four years uh, to – you get a degree someplace between four and six years, Uh uh, and then you decide whether you're going into the workforce or or going on to – to graduate or, or professional school. That model hasn't changed. Yeah. And, and yet the technology that should allow us to maybe do this more rapidly yeah. is either not being embraced or uh, is being ignored. I, yeah. I don't know exactly well, how to put the, it. That's exactly right. And uh, let, uh, let's just start with the most basic, simple thing. Summer. July, how many classrooms, how many kids who are, quote, college students are doing anything academically in the month of July? How many professors are? Uh, Very few. Uh, Why? Well, ostensibly, they're out there helping them pick those crops, you know. I mean, that's the, <laughs> the reason agrarian. that's the reason that summer break occurred right. was uh, in the 17th and 18th century people were poorer than they are today. They were predominantly agri- we had an agrarian society and people had to kind of help at peak periods uh, with the crops. Uh, that went away long ago, but the academic uh, schedule didn't change. It's the same now as it was uh, 7 1850. And for why? Why? Why don't we have three-year degrees? Uh, the people have been arguing for years. The Europeans, by the way, uh, if you go to Oxford University, you get a bachelor's in three years. If you go to Harvard University, you get it in four. Well, why? I mean, may, I'm not saying one is necessarily wrong and the other is necessarily right, but why do we persist in doing things the same way? Because because, as you say, technology has changed. The nature of what we teach has changed. We, we used to teach Latin and Greek and uh, uh, religion uh, in college. Those are not taught very much anymore, uh, uh, although we used to brag at OU of when you were the editor of the Post or back in that era that we had the largest – number of Greek students in America or something <laughs> in our Greek program here, but even that number is pretty modest. Uh, and things have changed a lot, and uh, higher ed has very few incentives to really change, to maximize the benefits of those changes, I think. I mean, I teach the same way. I'm in my 52nd year of teaching at OU. I'm teaching. I taught the same course this fall as I taught the first year I came here, and I taught it the same way. Now, I do, you know, email my students, and I couldn't email my students 50 right. years ago. There are subtle minor differences, but reality is things haven't changed. Now, could I do things different? Could I do things that might enhance productivity, uh, learning? And maybe even take less student time. I think probably there are. Maybe I could be doing more things online. Maybe I could be uh, 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 doing a lot of other things uh, that would enhance their learning. But no one gives me any incentives to. I, it's kind of nice to do get up and do the same old thing. And uh, uh, do, do professors who uh, – uh, set the world on fire uh, even for being good teachers get rewarded very much and there's some 
debate about that. Right. And, uh, uh, so there are problems that higher ed has that is that are somewhat unique to it. I'm not saying how I would even change it because some of those problems are also part of the insulation that protect us, the higher education community, from uh, inappropriate outside influence, what we would think as professors and uh, right. students as inappropriate outside influences, the uh, whims of the political whims of the moment. Uh, engulfing the academy and changing what we do. We wouldn't want that. So we're we're given a, a layer of insulation. For example, professors get tenure, uh, and uh, uh, which has been very helpful to me on a number of occasions, but which nonetheless is, you know, why do you have tenure? You know, it's crazy. The only other people I have tenure are Supreme Court, as you pointed yes. out, are Supreme Court, are, 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 are federal judges. Right. And it uh, makes no sense. We'll be back after this message. At the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University, students and faculty aren't just ready for change, they're hungry for it. The Scripps College of Communication was awarded $878,000 by Ohio University for an immersive media initiative that will allow students to become skilled leaders in immersive media, especially virtual and augmented reality. The college's Game Research and Immersive Design Lab will serve as the hub for the initiative and provide several million dollars worth of equipment, processes, intellectual property, and award-winning scholars and partnerships for the project. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. You talk about in some of your writings the uh, country clubization of, of colleges and universities now looking at the social amenities, uh, sometimes more than the uh, academic uh, rigor uh, of, of an institution, and that attracts more students, thereby more money, and, and, yeah. and it, it's part of the cycle. Talk about that. I mean, that that seems to be counterproductive to the educational mission. Yeah, so there, there's. I can make an argument both ways on this. Okay. Uh, let's, for the sake of argument, uh, make an argument for this. Um, students go to college to do a lot of things. It's their first time away from home. It's the first time they're independent in life uh, from their families, and. The excuse for going away from home, and it's an important excuse, is to learn additionally and more rigorously and more intensely than they did in high school. And so we send them to institutions called colleges to do that. Uh, and the learning is sometimes highly specialized, so you can't do it in the local hometown. You need to right. go a distance away, etc. So we have – that's the argument for colleges. But also another part of going to college is uh, making friends, um, developing lifelong contacts, learning to inter to relate well in, in terms of interpersonal relations, to uh, learn communication skills, to learn leadership skills, uh, to be uh, members of clubs and then to run those clubs or student newspapers or whatever, be on the athletic teams, uh, be a football star. 
And a lot of the learning that goes on in colleges are these informal, non-college uh, credit type forms of learning. And the country clubization of the universities uh, has perhaps increased the uh, utility of this socialization dimension of college. And even aside from all that, you know, we do some. We spend some of our money just to have fun in life, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing immoral about it. It's a sort of almost Victorian have to argue against it in a way. You know, it's sort of. And so, kids spend a good bit of time in bars, and they uh, engage in a lot of uh, you know, uh, uh, sex, drug, and rock and roll. And um, I don't condone the drugs. Uh, and that's part of going to college. So you could make an argument for the country clubization on that. But you can argue that there's excess in everything. And the excess argument is it's, it's fine for the colleges and universities to uh, provide a gymnasium where they can play basketball or racquetball or a track they can run around. It's even fine to have provide maybe intercollegiate sports so they can go watch games and participate in sports at some level. But we have gotten excessive in all of this. We now, instead of building just mere gyms, we build country club-like facilities. Uh, a decade spas. Of, spas. <laughs> a decade ago, you had to have a climbing wall. So at for example, at Ohio University, where I teach, uh, we built, uh, it's been almost a generation now, 20 years, we built a climbing wall in something called the Ping Center. Uh, that Miami didn't have one then. Miami University, our rival, so within a decade, they had a climbing wall. I even verified this, by the way. So, the, But now, climbing walls aren't enough. And uh, so if you go to Texas Tech University, which... Uh, by the way, the Ohio University president has, has come from Texas Tech. Uh, they have a, a spectacular swimming pool that they call a lazy river. And it is, I think, 800, 900 feet long. It looks like a river. And you can go and you can get a very nice little thing to lay on a raft of some sort with a, a holder for your beverage and you can uh, uh, sort of float down the river contemplating life or getting drunk or whatever you want uh, and the university and this thing costs nine million dollars to build it's a nine million dollar swimming pool and so that's kind of fashionable now and so and of course dormitories used to be two to room uh, a bathroom down the hall where about 20 people use very little privacy. Right. Uh, and now, you know, you've got to have marble uh, countertops in your kitchen, in your suite. Uh, and uh, how much of that is uh, – is that really detracting from learning? And uh, are, are the resources we're using to support those things better used in lowering the cost of college to students and allowing – students to be able to attend uh, um, easier, particularly low-income students. Let me ask a, a question. In your writings, and I know uh, in being an economist that uh, you believe this to your core, that, that people or institutions don't change without incentives. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
What are the incentives for higher education to, to change, if, if any? Or are we having, for example, negative incentives? For example, so many states around the country are putting tuition f- freezes on and, and, and fee freezes, saying that you need to be more productive with what you have to the universities. Yeah. Talk about the use of incentives yeah. for change. I think incentives in higher higher education, for the most part, there's a small exception to this, but for the most part is a nonprofit activity. There are no uh, built-in inducements for anyone to behave differently because they can get special, extra, extraordinary financial gains for themselves. Uh, the, there is an exception in the area of for-profit education, but it's a minor part of the picture. So let's, for the sake of discussion, let's just ignore that. Right. Uh, the so you know why should I be good? Uh, why should I work fifty hours a week instead of thirty hours a week? What do I gain from it? Uh, well, I might, as a professor, gain a little bit larger salary increase because I publish a few more articles or I have a little better student evaluations because I prepare more for class. There are some modest gains, uh, but they're nowhere near what they would be in the private sector uh, and where a person who really succeeds well could make literally millions of dollars at some point in their career. Uh, at best in higher ed, for most part, you could make maybe a couple hundred, three hundred thousand dollars a year. So there are you can live a good life in higher ed, and I think most of us do live good lives. But you can't live a spectacularly opulent life in a materialistic sense, uh, and uh, because there's no incentives to do that. Now there are you know, places where they're starting to talk about changing. And when they do, there's often criticism of that. For example, university presidents now, in some cases, do receive uh, nice bonuses for allegedly good performance, however you measure that. We had right. that right. question earlier. Uh, and uh, get $100,000, $300,000 a year added to their salaries. And some of them are even making a million bucks a year now, uh, which, uh, you know, some are horrified by that. Higher ed is also tax exempt. We are treated, uh, we actually receive tax revenues rather than pay out tax, uh, pay taxes. To, uh, so we are sort of privileged in society uh, uh, because we're doing something ennobling in the eyes of the public. I think we do do some important and positive things. Uh, so we're given special privileges. And some say, well, if you're going to be given those spef- special privileges, you you cannot expect to uh, have live particularly opulent lives. So financial incentives uh, are muted partly, I think, in, uh, partly for those reasons as well. They say, you're being treated well as it is, We and you're living good lives as it is. We don't pay governors. We don't. The president of the United States only makes 400000 a year. Uh, why should we pay a university president more than the, the president of the United States? So there are a lot of, uh, I think, society is somewhat believes that uh, 
the incentive system maybe should be different in higher ed. But that means it is very difficult to have internally to change things. And that's why governments are uh, – politicians uh, often want to get involved. Uh, those of us in higher ed would say metal uh, in what goes on. Uh, at the moment in the state of Ohio, the governor has decided that textbooks are very expensive. He's right about that. Uh, there is a little scandal that could be told about textbooks and so forth. Professors don't even know the price of the textbooks they assign most cases. But the governor's solution is to make the universities pick up some of the costs of the textbooks uh, of students. And I received a call from a legislature in the Ohio General Assembly today talking to me about that and saying, well, Maybe we should uh, uh, not allow professors to get free textbooks from publishers since uh, they charge that, that there's an ethics problem here. We should amend the ethics laws to bring professors under that. Uh, I, I actually got that phone call wow. this morning. And so it's very difficult to internally solve the problems of higher ed. So people on the outside try to. And often they do so well-intended uh, in a well-intended way, but it doesn't always have the intended consequence. You mentioned tuition caps. Uh, we put a, and, and that's one way to deal with it. And I, I must admit if I were in the legislature, I'd be thinking about that as at least one option. But what do universities do when you put tuition caps on? Well, one thing they do is what I mentioned earlier. I talk about room and board charges. Well, they raise uh, room and board charges astronomically. And before uh, – now they are charging off probably half the salary of the president of the university to the <laughs> room and boards – to the dorm system uh, you know, as a way to make the books seem like that they're not making a huge profit off of it. And uh, so that's one thing they do. And they, they, there are a lot of other things they can do. They can lower the quality of what they do. You can say, well, you're gonna, we're going to charge X for a, a bachelor's degree. Well, OK, we're not going to uh, – we're going to have classes with 200 students taught by adjunct faculty who are very inexperienced as opposed by uh, senior people. So – the incentive systems are are difficult to overcome, and that that is the inherent problem. I must say, I do think it will take some outside technolo technological innovation, disruptive innovations, if you say. Maybe, mm -hmm. uh, and I think we are getting some of that now. I think there's some you know developments, the internet. And uh, electronic technology, uh, uh, distance learning has had some impact and starting to have more. Uh, but it's been slow in coming. It's been slow in coming. Centuries ago, when I went to undergraduate school, uh, there were a lot of first-generation college students and college graduates, me being one of them from my, my family. Uh, but there was an incentive to go to college, uh, you, you, to better yourself financially, to better yourself socially, to be, better yourself sure. professionally. Are those same incentives here today? I, you know, why should somebody go to college? They're, they're not making much more money. Well, that's, <laughs> that's the good question. It's interesting. Some people are voting with their feet not to go to college. Now, the numbers aren't huge yet, but in the fall of 2016, the academic year in which we are right now, 
The number of students attending colleges and universities in the United States is a million less than it was five years ago. Now, that's a remarkable development in American history. That happened uh, during World War II. Obviously, when you pull all the men off to go fight wars, it's happened a little bit. It didn't even happen in the Great Depression. In the Great Depression, numbers of students in college rose, not as dramatically as they had earlier. Why is it happening? Well, there's been a little bit of a decline in the 18 to 22-year-old cohort, which is where we get most of our college students. That explains some of it. There was the Great Recession of 2007, 8, and 9, which made jobs very difficult to get for a while. But, you know, we're seven, eight years past that now. And uh, the I've been doing a lot of study on the gains from going from high school to going to college. What is that? And look at it just in the very narrow terms of the income differential. And that income differential is starting to narrow a bit. It's not narrowing a lot. So the benefits of going to college are stagnant, maybe uh, the financial benefits, maybe even declining a bit. People read about college kids graduating, becoming baristas, home health care aides, working at Walmart or Home Depot or Back in mom and dad's basement. Yeah, and living in mom's and dad's basement. $1.3 trillion in college debt. Over 40 million Americans have this debt, and it's getting to be a burden. So as the burden of going to college seems to rise cost-wise, as the benefits of college seem to at best be holding their own and maybe declining a bit, why go to college? And the data are starting to show that some people are asking that. So the question down the road for the colleges is, how are we going to react to this? The 18 to 22-year-old cohort, by the way, is going to continue to shrink, shrink for a few more years. So at least in the next five years, for that reason alone, you would expect some decline. We have nationwide something happening now that happened rarely 25 years ago or 50 years ago. We're having colleges close. We're having colleges, some with pretty decent reputations, Sweetbriar College in Virginia, a fine women's college with a pretty good reputation, an 80-some million dollar endowment that announced a year or two ago, we're closing because it's unsustainable what we're doing. We are eventually, we can keep going for a few more years. We can run that endowment down, but eventually we're going to run out of money. And so why don't we call it quits while we're ahead? That was their attitude. Now, the alumni all complained and so forth, and they're going the same thing. Uh, Antioch, uh, of, of, of sort of a non-conventional school, but a, a Yellow rather, Springs, Ohio. Yellow Springs, right? Ohio. But a pretty, in its day, a, had a pretty good reputation. It was an, an interesting school, always viewed sort of as an alternative school, but, but, but one of which was much respected. Uh, and it went out of business. Now, again, I understand it's back in operation with 130 students or something, very small number. The historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs, are in deep trouble in the United States. I, uh, uh, I, I'm not saying that because I dislike them. Indeed, I think they serve an interesting and important role. But 
uh, their enrollments are down. Their uh, financial conditions are are shaky. A lot of them, not all of them, but mm-hmm. most of them are in having uh, significant financial problems. So we're starting to read stories in the Chronicle of Higher Education, our trade newspaper, or the Inside Higher Ed about colleges uh, closing. Uh, uh, Mount St. Joseph College just uh, announced it was closing. Uh, Every once a month, I read about a new college closure. Uh, It used to be maybe twice a year I would read. So they're starting to pick up. So uh, disruptive innovation. In the private sector, when you have things change and you're not with it and you're not doing what the new trends are, you go out of business. You lose customers. uh, You go from profits to loss. You have trouble paying your bills. And you got a business. In higher ed, we are somewhat insulated by, in the case of public institutions, state appropriations, the case of private institutions by public philanthropy and donations. Harvard University has a thirty-some billion dollar endowment. You could they could lose every student at Harvard <laughs> University and every professor. The school would still have a couple billion dollars in annual income coming in. So Harvard is practically impossible to do away with if you wanted to. But that's not most of American higher ed. One last area I wanted to talk about, and and that is quality of education. If we're paying more. And, and besides the amenities, uh, part of the argument is that we should get better education. The governor of Ohio, John Kasich, just came out with a, a statement recently that 30 percent of the students who come to state universities in Ohio from our primary and secondary education need remedial courses. Something seems to be broken there. Yes. First of all, the coordination between the primary and secondary schools and the universities uh, is pathetic in America. Indeed, it's it's, it's interesting administratively uh, that the colleges and the high schools are – first of all, they're different institutions. Even administratively at state governments, for example, to use Ohio as an example, we have a Department of Education in Ohio which serves K through 12 and maybe preschool through 12. And then we have a separate Department of Higher Education, formerly called the Ohio Board of Regents. And that's the, uh, that is altogether separate. And they're separate organizations. There's not much coordination there. There's not a lot of coordination historically between what the colleges were doing and what the high schools were doing. There, I think there's been good faith efforts to improve that in recent years and so forth. There has been increases in the high schools, for example, in things like advanced placement courses and allowing kids to go from the high schools, very bright students and energetic students to the colleges, take courses. All of that's for the good. Uh, But uh, we have a real problem there, I think, uh, in America. And uh, uh, a lot of kids are not getting the kind of education in high school that the colleges expect. Now, are the expectations of the colleges realistic? I mean, 
those areas where there's remedial education, uh, are they really important? Well, most of them are really basics. I mean, they're mathematics, reading, they're reading, writing, writing and, and arithmetic. arithmetic. That's yeah. what it is. A lot of the criticism of higher ed perhaps is a little overblown, a little uh, – uh, some of the criticism maybe should be directed at lower levels a bit. Uh, what are we doing wrong in K through 12? Why aren't those kids graduating at least to be able to do elementary algebra and geometry Although I just read a book that says, why do we teach geometry? We never use it anywhere. <laughs> why do we even teach it? trigonometry? I mean, you, and the, the more I think about it, I think that's true. I remember trigonometry well from high school a million years ago. But, hell, I haven't done anything with it since. <laughs> uh, I think the governor, you know, he's on to, I think he has, he's raising a legitimate question, and I don't know that I have the answer. Fascinating discussion, as always, Dr. Vetter. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Tom. Today, we've talked with Dr. Richard Vetter of the Center for College Affordability and Productivity about the value and the cost of a college degree today. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through iTunes. If you have questions or comments about our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.